of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we stand before you this morning with grateful hearts. We thank you for the opportunity you have given us to be your sons and daughters. And we just pray that this morning as we worship you here in this place, that you would open our hearts to what you have for us today. I just pray you'd be with John, just be with him as he shares what you've laid on his heart. Help us to receive it and to live out what your word has for us today. Just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning to everyone this morning. As most of you know, I had planned to preach three weeks ago on the Sunday after we were all in Vanessa's wedding, but then LaVon actually almost offered to instead, so I didn't want to pass that up. I, I think all of you would agree we do enjoy um, hearing a fresh perspective from someone outside of the four of us, and so I appreciated what he had to say that day. But in looking ahead to this sermon, which is what I had planned for then, obviously knew that my turn would come immediately after the wedding. And so I was trying to think of something somewhat appropriate for um, a wedding crowd, if I might say. And my intention was not then nor now to preach to Durrells. I did not expect them to be listening. <laughs> and here they are. So that's fine. Um, but it's, this is largely for the rest of us as well. So in thinking of weddings in general, I realized something that may seem a bit odd, so bear with me as I try and explain what I have here. But I've noticed that people will occasionally, when referring to a wedding, use the word funeral instead, by mistake, or the other way around. Um, they're referring to a funeral, they use the word wedding. And I don't know if that ever happened to you, or you know, if you hear somebody say, oh yeah, last month we went to that wedding, I mean that, that funeral and so and so. Is that just me, or did that ever happen to you guys? Anybody ever hear that? I heard it three times in the month leading up to last, last week there, and not just from the same person, from different people. So it kind of, obviously, I was thinking what I was going to be sharing on, and it, it made me think, well, you know, are there some differences? Are there some similarities? Why do we subconsciously accidentally substitute the one word for the other? I mean, the, the two events are quite opposite in many ways. Um, the one is an ending, the other is a beginning, and the one is happy, the other is usually sad. There's also some, some similarities. Um, both events are to celebrate someone else's life. Um, we attend both events not because of us, but because of someone else, um, to share in their joy or in their grief, probably more than my own. Um, I'm sure weddings bring the couple more joy than they do to me. Um, and then likewise, as a funeral, yes, we might know the person, um, but depending on how close we are to them, we obviously do not feel the grief like the person, the, the immediate family does. Uh, both, e both events bring families together, <coughs> people you might not have seen in some time, and some people might even be guilty of going to either event more to see the guests that show up than the person or couple around whom the event is centered. Um, I don't think I'm old enough to be guilty of that yet, but I can see that happening someday, possibly. But there is a time of reconnecting, a time of fellowship. Um, often there's a meal involved, and it's a time of just simply um, getting together with, when we say family, or at least fellow acquaintances. 
And there's also sometimes a time of looking forward or backward, depending on what the event is. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, often the one that has the, the sermon or whatever will talk about the couple's new life together, give some you know, ideals on that. Or if uh, it's a funeral, they'll be looking back on the life that was lived. Often some memories are given. And um, looking at somebody else's life, and often that kind of leads us to reflect on our own life as well, at least it does for me. Um, there are changes at both these events. For the immediate families, they leave either event without taking their loved one with them. Now, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, my uncle and his family had taken care of my grandpa in the last years of his life, and he told us later that when they left my grandpa's funeral, my uncle went to find my grandpa and said, hey, it's time to go home and then realize that, you know, obviously that's not going to happen anymore. And I imagine there can be some similar situations in possibly the parents of the new couple as well, um, leaving without their children again. So again, some maybe odd similarities, if you please, but I find them kind of interesting. And I want to bring those together today. Uh, I want to talk about building and eventually leaving a legacy. Uh, today's title, Building a Godly Legacy. Uh, heritage is similar, but I think legacy brings a little more of a thought, something that is passed down, something simply remembered by following generations. And that's where I see some common ground between the weddings and the funerals here. So wedding is obviously the beginning of a new household, and as we've, you know, we've heard wedding sermons, the two become one. They both leave their respective families and at the same time because they were part of those families, they combine aspects from each of their families when they are building their new one. And so they begin their own legacy that one day they may eventually pass on to their children if God blesses them with those. And so, you know, I'm simply using your wedding as an example, nothing here. Of all of us that might have gone through the same thing, I'm sure you're finding um, that your lives were not the same at home as maybe your partner's life was. And so there's aspects of it that you're going to combine, some probably discard as you find your way together and you are forming your own, if I may call it legacy, from that. A funeral, on the other hand, obviously ends, marks the end of the opportunity to build on that legacy. Um, that person's time has passed on what has been built is what it is. Uh, time will tell if it was worthwhile. Um, will your great-grandchildren and beyond have reason to remember your name, to know your name? Um, I know a number of years ago, my daughter brought home a book from school that had a very simple family tree she was supposed to fill out. Started with my daughter's name, birth date, then my wife and I, and then our parents, and then grandparents, which would be eight, so, you know, grandparents for great-grandparents for my daughter. And for most of us, our memories don't reach back much beyond our grandparents, some not even that far. I remember one great-grandpa, and that was when I was very, very young, but that's the further, furthest back. I, I remember his name, but then beyond that, uh, my great-grandparents, I would have to go to my dad to get their names. So we've, we know very little about generations more than two or three back, about their day-to-day -day lives, their choices, their personalities, or even, like I said, their names beyond a couple generations back. Uh, they lived their lives, some good, some not so good, 
And yet each passed on a legacy of some kind to their children, grandchildren, and so on to you and me. And yet sadly, within a couple years, a couple generations, they're, they're largely forgotten. So my daughter's tree started larger at the top and then funneled down until you know, it produced her. And the tr that tree leading to us, to you and me, is very important for us to appreciate and that each one involved needs to do their part in passing on a godly legacy in order for it not to be lost. Um, each one of those needed to accept God's plan of salvation, the truth of his word, and then make it a real part of their lives in order to pass, be able to pass that on to their children. If they did not do that, they obviously could not pass that on. Everyone builds and then leaves some kind of legacy, whether good or bad. Uh, good legacies don't create themselves. They take effort. Uh, I think that's very important to remember. We're probably not going to end up at the end of our life and say, wow, what a great life that was if we didn't put much effort into making it what it was. Some of us can look back many generations um, and look at the history of the legacies that brought us to where we are. Uh, others may be the first to break, break a cycle of bad legacies and begin building for the good. So some of us have had the privilege of having a lot of good passed down. Others are maybe more what we would call first generation Christians and they are beginning to build that, building it for the future. You said how that family tree funneled down to produce each one of us. That tree also then goes the other way. We are the head of another tree that expands the other direction away from us in the future. And that tree will quickly grow beyond our immediate control. It will keep growing even after we are no longer here. And it could potentially produce uh, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. I don't know. Um, I talked with a coworker the other day. We were discussing cousins. And they had a family reunion on the mother's side. And he guessed that potentially there was 800 people just in the mother's, so his, his aunts and uncles, immediate cousins, grandchildren. So anyway, um, some trees split faster than others. But uh, point being, um, that number can quickly grow from our point on. And we obviously can't make choices for all of those, but we do affect the direction of those choices for all those people. The legacy that we pass on will affect the direction eternal destiny of countless numbers of people. So I want to look today at some examples from the Bible about leaving a godly legacy. And in today's world, the word legacy is often used to describe you know, some, uh, sums of money, property, um, that have been designated for a particular use. We think of maybe forming a trust or a foundation or something, the legacy of so-and-so dedicated to a certain cause. Or maybe simply... Uh, the power, position, prestige that comes with a certain family name or a business or other accomplishments. And while it's nice to be on maybe the receiving end of those, they often don't last very far beyond a generation or two. So if you would turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I want to start by looking at <clears throat> a man who had opportunity to leave a great legacy. I want to break in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, break in at verse 4. Uh, King Solomon talking here, and obviously if we were to read the chapters leading up to this, we would see Solomon lamenting that he has tried everything in his power 
in the search for happiness, fulfillment, and he's not coming up with a whole lot. So breaking in verse 4, um, I have made my works great. I built myself houses, planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted many kinds of fruit trees in them. Made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants, had servants born in my house. Yes, I had great possessions of herds and flocks and all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special tre treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, it, the delights of the son, sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was, the, was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked at all the works my hands had done, and labor which I had toiled. Indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom ex excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I perceived myself, yet I myself perceived that this same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why then was I more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise man more than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. So how does the wise man die? as the fool. Therefore I hated life because the work that was done on the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor for which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I was showing myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all labor which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave this heritage to a man who has, who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for all the striving of his heart for which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, his work burdensome, even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. So here we see King Solomon, um, the wisest man that ever lived, and one of the richest, at least for his time there, and he wrote three books of the Bible, one of them full of nothing but wise sayings, godly sayings, proverbs. Uh, he had vast wealth and influence. Uh, his wisdom was known around the world. In 1 Kings 10, we read about the Queen of Sheba traveling over 1,400 miles, which was probably two or three months by camel, simply to hear and to test his wisdom. And then we know he built one of the most beautiful temples of all time um, for God. And it's sad and almost comical to read this passage here. Uh, according to my account, he uses the word I, me, my, mine, and myself 57 times in this passage. So he is certainly looking back on his life, um, taking inventory, looking back at what he accomplished, what he accumulated, and one of his chief concerns in verse 16, that no one is going to remember all that he did. He was so wise, uh, he did all this, and who's going to remember? And then beyond that, uh, in the end, the wise men, the foolish men, both die and lie side by side in their graves. So he did recognize 
that as well, that at the end of his life, um, he will not be any different as far as this world concerns than the man who was not wise. And then also in verse um, 18 and 19, that the man coming after him would inherit all that he had done and accumulated and would not use it wisely. Now, is that something that, that we're concerned about, that we spend our life building something that someone after us is going to squander? Uh, I think to a certain extent, um, we are wise to be concerned about that. And maybe that is a good lesson here from Solomon. Uh, this worry did somewhat come to pass in his son Rehoboam, who started off his rule as king by accepting bad advice. And then ultimately, uh, the kingdom was divided in his day and the people turned to idol worship. So in the, in the, the course of barely one generation, all of Solomon's legacy was largely divided, squandered. Um, I'm sure it didn't all disappear that quickly, but it, it did not last. So we see um, that an earthly legacy, money and power, can often be lost in a very short time to greed and to corruption. And it seems the more Solomon accumulated, the more he realized the inadequacy of what he was doing. The more he searched among what he could provide for himself, the more he realized that he simply couldn't find what he was searching for. Toward the end of the book here, he does ultimately satisfy that search in God and his word, but unfortunately there's still a ring of emptiness in his writing there. The man who had it all really didn't have a whole lot to pass on. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. And I don't want to belittle what Solomon did accomplish. He accomplished a lot. Um, and we are thankful for what some of his writings and stuff. But in his personal life, it's interesting to see this other side to it. Matthew chapter 1, uh, the first 16 verses here. This is the family tree of Jesus. This is the writer Matthew um, proving Jesus' legal or royal lineage through Joseph, who was not actually his blood father. But as the family line followed the father, God had also arranged that to line up as well. And Luke then traces his line back to his bloodline back to his brother Mary. But this is the legacy, if you please, if we call it that, that was passed down through the generations. And let's remember, this is the line that God, not man, chose to use to bring his son into the world. Some were more faithful than others, and yet God worked his will through all of them. So I'd like a volunteer to read the first 16 verses. Of, okay, we'll skip that. Um, but if we look over this passage, we see there's a wide diversity in the people listed here. Uh, some we would call heroes of the faith. Some have very shady pasts. Some are royalty, and some are just very ordinary. God entrusted a very colorful lineage of both good and bad people to bring his son into the world. And I won't read this because I won't try for the names here. But if we look at the ones that we recognize and the ones that we don't, uh, first of all, the ones that we don't, out of the 48 or so names here, I recognize less than half of them. Now, maybe I'm exposing my ignorance here, but some of these I don't think are mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place they are mentioned. I think that's significant because it doesn't mean we have to be someone of great importance for God to use us. Even the names that we don't recognize are equally important in linking together this chain of 
legacy down that led to the birth of Christ. And we look at those, um, even those we don't recognize, we know that their lives held big and little choices. They made good and bad decisions. They had hopes, dreams, successes, and failures, and they were not insignificant in their own eyes. They each, I believe, like we all do, felt their life was important. And yet history doesn't tell us all their stories. It just leaves us with only a name. So there are some that we do know. Um, verses 5 and 6. Uh, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And so there's a few opinions on this. Most agree that Rahab mentioned here was the one who sheltered the Israelite spies who came to check out Jericho. And if we accept that, let's turn to um, Joshua chapter 2. We know the story of Rahab hiding the spies and then helping them to escape. And I want to look at what she says in verses 9 through 21, Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Um, I'm sorry, breaking in here. Then she said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sidon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token, and spare my father, my mother, and my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have. And deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, and none of you tell this business of ours. This shall be when the Lord has given us this land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let down by a rope to the, then she let them down by a rope to the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. She said to them, Get to the mountain, let, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days till the pursuers have returned. Afterwards you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made for us, made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, unless you bring your father, mother, brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on your own head, and we will be guiltless. Whosoever is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from the oath which you have made a swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. So here we have, you know, a wicked woman from a heathen nation, a nation that God was planning to uh, destroy, confessing her belief in God. And in verse 11, she says, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. And where she learned that about God, um, we don't know. But for some reason, her heart was very open to these Israelites' God. She recognized him, honored him for his power and who he was. And then she followed uh, very specifically the instructions that were given her by the spies in order to save her life and those of her family. Um, it's just interesting the details that they had there. And then we know that she and her family later joined the Israelites, became part of them. 
And then this man that we know, I don't think more of, other than named Salmon here, later became her husband, um, thought possibly, who knows, to have been one of the spies. Uh, I don't think we can prove that anywhere, but apparently he respected her changed life enough that he married her in spite of her previous sinful life. And so by her choice to follow God, she became part of the royal lineage of Jesus. She's only one of four women mentioned by name in Matthew's lineage and is later mentioned as a person of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, which then the next person in line, her son, uh, Boaz, and his story starts in Ruth chapter 1. And we know there was a, a famine in Israel. A man named Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, don't know how old they were at that point, and moved to Moab to escape this famine. Now, we in today's world don't quite understand a famine. Um, with advances in transportation and stuff, we can easily bring grain from thousands of miles away. And the idea of a famine is, is hard for us to grasp. But back then, um, a famine could be in a relatively small area. Um, somebody 100 miles away could have plenty of food and you were starving and there was just not a good way of transferring back and forth. So they moved to Moab to escape this famine. Now a side note here on the choice to move to Moab, the Moabites were a heathen people descended from Lot having a child with his daughter and the Israelites were to avoid them and certainly not to marry them, which again, both sons did. Um, they moved there, they stayed there long enough. Um, I don't know if they liked it there, uh, why they didn't come back, how long the famine lasted, I don't know. Um, but they stayed there long enough to actually establish families there. And moving to Moab was, at best, a very short side decision by Limelech, and at worst, it was outright disobedience to God's law. Uh, we don't read a lot about him, I don't know um, don't know his, his character there. And whether the three men died because of a consequence of that, I don't know. Um, God was pretty harsh on some things like that in those days. But they left behind the three widows. And when Naomi heard that the famine had ended, she wanted to return home. And she urged her two daughter-in-laws to stay behind. And the one, uh, Orpah, decided to stay back. And that's the last that we read about her. She disappeared into history and we know nothing more of her. The other, Ruth, refused to leave Naomi. We see her commitment in the first chapter, uh, verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah told her mother, or let, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. The Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for whether you will go, I will go, Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, you, there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Uh, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. So Ruth came back along with Naomi, and we see her acknowledge um, not just her commitment to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God. Um, thy God shall be my God. And by that commitment, she, like Rahab, became part of God's people. You know the story of them returning to Israel, God leading Ruth to glean in Boaz's field, Boaz showing kindness to her even as a foreigner, 
I had to wonder, did he maybe remember or heard stories of the kindness that was shown to his mother by foreigners? And could he relate in a small way possibly to being accepted in spite of being an outcast? <clears throat> uh, did he also respect Ruth because of her good reputation? If we look in chapter 3, he says, For all the people of my city knows that you are a virtuous woman. So she obviously, even after leaving for a time, coming back, um, had a good reputation. So Moaz, uh, Boaz married Ruth, and together they had a son named Obed. And in chapter 4, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. So obviously, you know, the, the family line was much more important in those days than maybe it is today. And I believe God was able to use the poor choices of Elimelech and turn them into a beautiful picture of redemption with Boaz buying back, which is the definition of redeeming, is buying back um, a legacy that had been broken by poor choices and then reconnecting it again in a way that God could continue his work through that. God could use that. Obed goes on to be the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, and so the legacy continues. Uh, through David's adultery with Bathsheba, Solomon and his 700 wives. Uh, looking at this, studying this, looking at the people that God used, it's rather appalling to see the amount of sin and corruption involved in this. Um, but if we look in Hebrews chapter 11, which we often call a faith chapter, we see a few common themes running through the people uh, listed here. Many of them that are listed there are part of the lineage there in Matthew. I want to look at just a couple verses there in Hebrews 11. Uh, first of all, verse 1, the opening to the chapter, says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now this, on the surface, would appear to be a contradiction of terms. Um, faith, as we know, is a belief, a trust, um, an expectation, whether it's big or small, uh, something that, you know, we, we think is going to happen, but it's a little out there yet. We don't actually have a hold of it yet. And here it's stated as a substance. Um, this, is, this is something that's a substance. I can get a hold of this. There's not much faith required to know that this podium is here in front of me. And yet he is using the word faith in that same way. Um, evidence, proof. Uh, if you study the legal world at all, uh, it takes a lot more evidence than faith to convict someone of a crime. And yet he's saying faith is sufficient evidence here. Um, assurance based on past experiences that God will do as he says. So proof. Um, these people had faith in things that were promised in the future. Things they couldn't see and never would see in their lives on earth. We talked about that in Sunday school some. People looking ahead. Yet they accepted them as substance, as evidence, as solid proof, um, as it says here. Their faith in these promises to come was as strong as, as if the promise had already happened. And they left legacies based on those promises that continue um, even today. And we have their testimonies written here. Uh, verses 13 through 16, I'll read. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them 
that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So they had their sights set on a heavenly kingdom. They realized that life here on earth is temporary, uh, something that Solomon realized as well, but maybe a little late in his life, that all he is building here is not going to last. Um, they believed that God had something much better in store for them in the future if they were faithful to him in the present. Uh, verse 24, talking about Moses here. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. We know the story of Moses and how he was forced to make a choice, um, first of all, being miraculously saved um, by God and then given a very, very different opportunity in life. And then um, there was that point in his life where he had to choose. Is he going to continue with the life of privilege, the life of ease, or is he going to choose to follow God? And we do know that he chose to follow God um, because of seeing the bigger picture of God's plan in his life. And even that took a number of years to fully show up. But he was looking ahead through what faith he had and seeing God's plan in the future. Verse 36, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yet of chains and imprisonment. They were stones, stones sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for them, they should not be perfect apart from us. So again, um, the account of people who stood, had courage to stand fast in the face of trials, persecutions, um, even persecution to death, because of looking forward to better things, as it says in verse 40, things that God had in store for them. So Solomon had his eyes down at the things around him, and the best that this world had to offer still left him feeling empty. People listed here looked above their surroundings to what God had in store for them in the future. And unlike Solomon, they did find what they were looking for. So what can we learn from these people? Uh, number one, God has a plan, and he wants us to be part of it. Number two, God has given each of us a legacy that he wants us to pass on, a legacy that passes on the truth of God's word and also the faith needed to follow it. Three, he wants us to be someone with a vision of the future, to be able to see God's hand at work through circumstances, whether good or bad. Now, vision is, a, is maybe an interesting concept, if I may say that. Um, if I would ask each of you, what is your vision? Would you all have an answer? It would be an interesting exercise. We have time. No, we don't. Um, do we have a vision, or do we simply get through today, have a plan for tomorrow, um, maybe your vision is big, maybe it's small, but I think God wants us to have a vision of what he has planned for us in the future. Maybe that will be a little unclear, but I think we need to be able to see beyond today. Number four, God can use imperfect people to fulfill his plan. As we looked over these, God recognized that we are human, 
We all sin, make mistakes. Uh, no one mentioned today was perfect, some very far from it, but those that repented, learned from their mistakes, became stronger because of them. These people allowed God, allowed themselves to be used by God. His plan probably wouldn't have been what it was, what some of them would have chose, but they followed God anyway. So even though um, we don't get to choose our plan, God does, and our call is to follow that. And lastly, God's plan will go on with or without us. He obviously wants us to be part of it, but he will not force us to follow his plan. He leaves that choice for us, up to us to follow him. So the challenge today um, for both young and old, uh, what kind of legacy are you and I leaving to the next generation? Will we come to the end of our life and look back like Solomon and realize that we've spent our efforts on things that will not last? And will we say, like him, that vanity of vanity, all is vanity? Um, or can we look forward to those who will be coming after us? And as Paul said in 2 Timothy, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, not to me only, but unto all them also that loved his appearing. I leave that as the challenge today. Let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the final song. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have allowed us to live in a time and place where we have had the privilege of knowing about you, whether we have come from a long line of godly legacies or whether we are the first in that line. We ask you to give us faith to believe as if we have already seen the promises that you have in store for us. Give us strength as we go from day to day to be faithful and also to pass on what we have been given. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.